Hello and welcome to this episode of HBCU. I'm your host, D. Brown, CEO, and joining me on the show today is a special guest, Dr. Victor Sutton. Dr. Sutton makes his way to the show via Jackson State University. Dr. Sutton, welcome to HBCU. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Man, the pleasure is all mine. Hey, I want to just uh, always start this show off by trying to understand how did you decide that you would go to Jackson State University? And I think, if I'm correct, you completed your Ph.D. there. That's correct. Uh, you know, I, I'm actually from Mississippi and and growing up in Jackson, uh, there was no other place to uh, to look at. Um, I'm a big fan of all HBCUs. I have have traveled and visit all of them. Uh -huh. But growing up, watching the boom, um, going to programs on Jackson State campus as a youth, that was something that I always wanted to do. So. What was the experience like? Because obviously, you know, undergraduate studies is one uh, experience uh, in terms of uh, a collegiate uh, experience. But what was what was that experience like completing your Ph.D. at uh, Jackson State? Uh, it was it was very challenging. You know, um, going to HBCUs gets you really uh, ready for a number of different things. I, I finished up undergrad and I moved to New York and I um, attended uh, some certifications with the uh, uh, schools in New York and then I got a chance to move back down south and and so I wasn't really thinking about graduate school at the time but it just made sense and so I looked around at different programs and after I looked at different programs around I actually fell in love with the program that was at Jackson State and so that really what drew me there was just the quality of the programming um, seeing what some of the graduates from the program uh, we're doing and talking to some of the instructors prior to choosing a, a academic course. And the rigor was there. Um, the quality was there. Um, the preparation was there. And it was a great experience. It was a challenging experience and often frustrating at times. But, you know, that's part of it. And since you've had both, you know, the HBCU experience and then also the non HBCU or PWI uh, experience from an educational perspective, what are some of the differences that you notice between the, the two educational experiences? I, I think that's a great question, sir. Um, you know, one is that, you know, there, there's, 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 a, there's a certain thing that when, when you're in a community and they understand and they get you. And, um, and I will say that, you know, there was a, there was a certain different, there was, there was a certain level of social connectedness. Um, there was a, there was a cer certain level of um, embracing and embracement that you get. There was a certain level of, um, of warmth. Um, that was just uh, really evident. Um, and not to say that you don't you can't get those from other universities uh, and other non um, uh, HBCU experiences. It was just that my experience, it was just really, really evident um, having that embracing and having folks understand that this is really, really important because of the number of um, um, PhDs that are underrepresented in so many disciplines. Yeah. And so understanding the mission understanding the um, the assignment uh, it, it really took it really uh, resonated when you're um, when you're in, in these programs now I know you are a big supporter of JSU and JSU athletics uh, just tell me what is the experience like you know just being part of homecoming and and the festivities around surrounding homecoming and the game uh, just from the JSU experience so it, it's really hard to communicate if you haven't lived it and haven't been a part of it. Um, and, you know, just here, um, and I would just say it's just a testament. So I have colleagues, I have friends that went to PWIs, 
and they don't go to their homecomings. Um, they, 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 they go, they, they look for and try to come to uh, HBCU homecomings, not only just hours, but uh, they travel to different homecomings. And I think there is a movement where they're trying to have more activities for us uh, targeted for um, um, minorities and African-Americans in particular, uh, a lot of PDIs that have yeah. a better experience at home comes and that movement is kind of going on. Right. But it but it pales in comparison to um, to a JSU homecoming because activities uh, for homecoming, you know, they start at the beginning of the week. You have activities right. start Tuesday. And so homecoming goes that whole week. Um, and then there's something for everybody. And so we get to the point where uh, my sister and her and her kids, they all come come and stay with me during homecoming because there's something for everyone and every age group uh, for something to do to have a good um, festive and time around professionals uh, for the kids just to, just to have a great time. It's just it's hard to explain, but it's it's quite the, it's quite the ordeal. Yeah. So talk to me about uh, during the, the process of going through your uh, Ph.D. program at Jackson State. Uh, were there any uh, professors or, or, or staff members that were uh, instrumental in you having a successful uh, educational experience there? Yeah, no doubt. There was a number of um, a, a number of um, uh, professionals and instructors that that really um uh, wrapped your arms around you and 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 promoted and pushed you uh, as it relates to that getting that experience. Uh, again, the rigor was uh, was uh, was challenging because they they go above and beyond to understand with the knowledge that you're going to have to be um, sometimes a lot better than your counterparts in the same seat. And so we so they, there's a recognition of that, and there's an expect, expectation of excellence. And so um, there was there was a constant. Uh, support, constant support from from the instructors, uh, and then we went in, we went in, in cohorts, and so you had a cohort and a team that that traveled through the through the uh, educational process with you, and so there was a lot of group group on uh, dynamics, there was a lot of group learning, group study groups, and and so forth and so on. So you know it was just having that experience and 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 raising the bar and, and the expectation to to prepare a professional to go out into the community, uh, to go out into the workforce and be extremely prepared um, to do what was, was, was going to be required. So I want to uh, kind of dive into your professional uh, career and I want to kind of take that journey uh, to where you are today. So can you talk about, you know, when you finished undergraduate studies, kind of what did you do from a career perspective and then how did you work your way back uh, and decide to do your uh, Ph.D.? Uh, great question. And, um, and so, you know, um, sometimes you have your plans and then sometimes God has his plans. Right. And so and, and that and that tends to be a case with a lot of our different a lot of our careers. And so when I finished up uh, undergrad, I um, I said, well, you know, uh, I think I want to I, I, I know I need to get a, get a master's and, and got a got a call. And and so um, I was able to get a fellowship. And so I thought I was going to be in community economic development. And so that was going to be my track. I got a, a fellowship um, from HUD. And, and so I was doing a lot of on the community economic development track. And so I got I got my master's. And so uh, after that, um, I competed for a program that uh, landed me in, in New York. And so 
I, I lived in Albany, New York for three years. Uh, and, 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 and while I was up there, I went to the Rockefeller Institute of Government and did some, um, and, and did, uh, public management there. And I enjoyed it. But to be quite honest, it was way too cold for me. Uh, it was a mm-hmm. good time. It was a good time to get, get, uh, indoctrinated to a lot of other dis, um, uh, individuals and just being away from home and, 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 and a way of life of there. And I was working actually with the Department of Labor um uh there and so i enjoyed that decided that i was going to make make my way back down south and at that point in time everybody was going to atlanta and atlanta was the hot spot yeah. and that was and that was it and so i actually uh took a leave of absence from my job and i um went to atlanta just to get a break and to and i and i bartended uh at the um at the um the U.S. Olympics. Uh, and I, the only night that I was off in that particular area just to get a break was um, was the night that the bomb went off, if you can remember, yeah. at, uh, in Atlanta. Yeah. And so uh, after I kind of did that, I went back to New York and I said, hey, it's going to be time for me to work my way back back home. And so I started um, uh, migrating and um, sharing some resumes and vitas all around. And it just so happened that um, things happened for me quicker in Mississippi. And I ended up going into the nonprofit world, working with a um, couple foundations and and working in the nonprofit sector. And so um, that went really well. And I said, well, I was doing that work. This would be a great time for me to work on my PhD. And so while I was working, uh, with uh, in the nonprofit uh, arena, I started working on my um, PhD in public policy and administration, and so um, took me some took me some time to to finish, and then from the public from the public world uh, from from um, pro- uh, nonprofit world, I migrated to uh, the public sector, working with the uh, Department of Human Services and doing a, a number of different activities there, and um, and just so happened I I found myself in uh, um, having an opportunity. Uh, with the um, Mississippi State Department of Health. And so I'll get my uh, degree in public policy and administration from Jackson State University, which lends itself to what um, uh, MBA is to the private sector, public policy is to the public sector and the nonprofit world. And it gave you that, those core set uh, skill sets of planning, organizing, reporting, staffing, budgeting, really being a public manager. That was a skill set that you can take along to a number of different arenas. And so I started working in the, in the public health field and things really, really took off and um, I really excelled in that area and really enjoyed doing doing the work. So I do a number of um, prevention programs and a number of grant writing programs. So uh, in your current role at the uh, Mississippi Department of Health, uh, talk about, you know, your role and responsibilities and, and, and how your work impact the communities that you all serve. Um, thanks for that question. Uh, my, my current title is I'm the chief of community health and clinical service, cl- clinical services at the Mississippi State Department of Health. So I, I, I oversee a huge amount of the, the uh, operations of the um, of the health department. I work in conjunction um, with the state health officer who is a MD, but I'm over um, all the clinics in the state. Uh, we have a clinic in um, basically every county except for two where they're shared. Uh, and, and we're centralized, so um, I oversee all of those programs. I oversee all of uh, programs in preventive health and health equity, which we have a, a number of um, uh, 
programs in chronic disease, which would include cardiovascular health, diabetes, arthritis, and those risk factors associated with those issues, such as nutrition and um, and um, physical activity. Uh, of course, understanding that obesity underlines all of those things. Right. Uh, there's injury and um, um, prevention um, that has um, that we have an area in that place. Uh, teenage pregnancy prevention. Uh, also, I oversee a, a huge area uh, called health services that has a number of different programs around breast and cervical cancer, um, uh, maternal and child health issues, um, uh, and, and an, an array of health services type programming. Also, uh, recently, um, I'm the uh, PI for what we call the Jackson Heart Study. And it's a over a 20 year uh, largest Af uh, African-American uh, study in the, in the country uh, cohort where I have a piece of that, which uh, I established what we call a community engagement center. So um, I, I PI that and that's funded through the uh, National Institutes of Health. And so I have a, a, a broad range. I have, I have great managers and kind of have um, authority uh, over over the state. And you touched on a few things that I want to do just a little bit of a deeper dive into because I think it would be uh, important for our viewers to better understand uh, some of the areas that you oversee and why they're so important, particularly to uh, communities of color. Uh, one of the things you talked about with, was health equity. And I want you to really expand upon what that is and, and, and how uh, that impact you know, communities uh, that are um, either, you know, impoverished or under underserved from a medical perspective? Well, well you know, there, there's um, that's that's a great point. And uh, oftentimes um, we as African-Americans, we know that when when some communities catch uh, a cold, uh, other communities catch the flu. And and we're, we're some of those communities. And that's it's been really, really historic. Um, about some of the issues and some of the challenges that that we've had um, as a community, uh, and not just our community, because I work with uh, Vietnamese, I work with Hispanic and, and Latino uh, as well, but but primarily um, uh, the largest demographic uh, of of minorities in in this state are African Americans, and so there's there's a lot of historical factors um, as as we know uh, that cuts across what we what we call oftentimes. I can tell you uh, what kind of health you're in by looking at where you live, um, where it kind of what you have access to as it relates to um, whether it's transportation or, or what have you, uh, what kind of um, uh, schools that you, that you have access to, um, what you have access to by way of, of care and, and providing care, um, employment. So a lot of these issues around the social determinants of health. Uh, as it relates to factors around having um, the um, uh, issues that we have in our community, um, uh, financial issues or as issues around redlining and and that we just historically have been discriminated against as far as um, economic opportunities uh, and some of those issues. So looking at um, trying to level the field as it relates to um, access to care. Uh, as it as it relates to other factors as well, understanding that health is, is you're you're only as healthy as as what you can afford and what you have access to. So some in, in some communities, uh, we still have communities where folks uh, do all their shopping at the gas station, uh, and what and what options are healthy there. And then there's a, comes a, there comes another issue as it relates what's affordable, uh, eating healthy um, um, is isn't isn't cheap, um, and in a, in a lot of communities. Before you can talk about eating healthy, you got to talk about eating. 
And uh, and right. so we understand those those factors and they're, they're complex issues. Um, and we're not going to, um, you know, just turn that around overnight, but it can be turned around. And so one of the things I did lead um, recently is that I did lead our COVID response for our state, um, which was unprecedented. And, uh, and I say that because we achieved um, some semblance of, of equity around COVID vaccinations and COVID vaccine. And that was because we had strong community partnerships. But I say that in reference that if we can do it uh, around COVID and, and get some kind of equity in that in that issue, we can do that in other issues if we prioritize those issues and understand that um, that that this should be a priority and we're only as strong as our weakest link. Right. And so you, you talked about the fact that um, you all have health, uh, community health facilities in every county except for two. Uh, in the state of Mississippi. And um, a lot of times people who um, may have access to healthcare with insurance and financial resources may not really understand the important role that community health facilities play within communities, especially for those that are living, uh, you know, at or uh, below the poverty line. Can you share with the viewers a, a little bit about your community health programs and how they help uh, impact the communities they serve? Oh, great question. And and um, and we do a lot of things in partnership. And so uh, the health department is, is more considered as a stopgap. If, if you're in, in a place that has adequate access and folks are seeing the doctor and those kind of things, then great. Uh, go to your primary care physician because uh, we don't want folks using the emergency room as a as a as a way. We want someone we want you to go and get your annual checkup. We want to work want you to work upstream um, as if it would relates to preventive services. So I want to get to um, uh, that's where a lot of my background, and a lot of my effort has been is working upstream uh, for those that, that don't have diabetes, or those that don't have high blood pressure. We want to get to you and, and look at behavior change type activities, working at an early age to um, create um, a healthy environment. Uh, a healthier, healthier behaviors so you can prevent or delay some of these issues. For folks that have some of these issues, we want we want you to control it. If you have high blood pressure or if you have diabetes, we want you to control those issues um, before those those issues get out of hand. Um, for, for teenage mothers, we want you to understand about contraception and what are your choices for family planning type type issues. And if you are having, if you do have a baby, what are some of those issues you can to in, in, uh, ensure a, a, a healthy ba uh, a healthy baby and a healthy mom? And so we have a number of different programs to kind of support uh, young mothers and, and young babies. We have another a, num a number of port uh, partnerships in place with um, providers that folks that uh, if you go in and someone give you a diagnosis of, of, of diabetes, or that you're pre-diabetic, then what are some of your options or what you need to do? There's programs and that we have in place. And what we what we also say is that we have evidence-based programs. These are evidence-based programs. It's just a way of saying that we know that these programs work. We have evidence to say that these programs work if you would take advantage of them. So we have a number of different programs across the state um, that, we're, that uh, we're healthy aging. And we work with faith-based organizations, we work with community-based organizations. We work with work sites. We work with our schools. Um, so we work and understand and try to, you know, incorporate health into um, all that we do, where we live, work, play, and worship. Mm 
right. um, and provide those opportunities. So there's a number of different things that we do as far as uh, healthier eating, community gardens, um, uh, prevention programs, uh, what we call shared use agreements where you're not in Mississippi is a rural state and you might often t- often have have uh, gyms and workout facilities in your community, but you have schools and oftentimes those schools have tracks and those are there and, um, and, and having safe places to walk and, and exercise and, and, and those kind of groups. Working, understanding that a lot of working with barbershops, we have a, a statewide barbershop program, understanding that um, in our community, um, Barbershops have been places where we used to go and 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 you have men to go and hang out all day. Right. Uh, and, and 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 then when you get like us and you have no need to go to a barbershop, <laughs> we, still have, we still have sons and we have other folks that uh, right. and family that still go to barbershops and you have a long trust and relationship. And so we work with our barbers to target some of our hardest folks to reach. And that's African-American men. Understanding that African-American men, oftentimes they do not go to the doctor unless um, there's a problem. And so uh, working with barbershops has been a really good, great gateway into uh, into the community and getting, getting men to, um, to talk about these issues, get blood pressure checks. Um, and then we also have a lot of challenges around mental health which has often been taboo in uh, in various communities, especially with with uh, with, our, with our men. Right. <clears throat> one of, one of the things you said I, I wanted to just touch on real quick because I I don't know that a lot of people are really aware of this who who don't have the uh, or any reason to do this, but in a lot of impoverished communities, uh, the population use the emergency room uh, for their health care because they don't have the copays and the money to go to a, the primary care position and so they flood the emergency rooms for uh, just ordinary routine care uh, because they don't have the ability to pay for, for doctors and you can go to an emergency room in a impoverished community and then go to one in an affluent community affluent community and you can see that it's a significant difference on the wait time and the number of people that are there uh, looking for, for service so I just want to point that out and then I wanted to, as we start to wind the show down I want you just to touch on for me um, how do you feel uh, your uh, educational experience at Jackson State University, how did it prepare you for the role that you're in today? Um, great question. Um, I, I give all kudos to my preparation at my HBCU, Jackson State University, the I love. Um, what, we, what they prepared me in doing is really engaging with the uh, uh, community. So outside of the work that we we had to do, that was, uh, if you will, from the book and from the guideline, we were required to do uh, community service uh, activities. Uh, we were required to um, work on various um opportunities and various things, whether that's uh, feeding the homeless, uh, whether that's um, taking a site visit at a community helps at a um, community based organization that may have done work with expungement, that may have done work with um, economic and community development, that may have done uh, work with um, financial literacy, that may have done work in various health or mental health programs. And so I think it really broadens up your world uh, and then understanding that connectivity. So uh, my HBCU, uh, outside of uh, giving me a fantastic degree um, that I will put up against anybody uh, at any university in, in the country, um, 
it also gave me it went beyond the book and it, and and we were required to do real life type activities. Right. And that's important. I think uh, in any educational uh, experience, you have the uh, the fundamentals, the book uh, knowledge, but it's nothing like that hands on experience. And, and I think everyone should have a community service. Uh, before we close the show out, I, I do want to uh, take a moment to number one, thank you for being on the show. But I want to also award you with our HBCU. Lifetime Achievement Award, and this is for your continued commitment to historically black colleges and university universities, and also for the success that you have had in your prefer, your professional career. And so, once again, I want to thank you so much for being on the show and taking time out your busy schedule to uh, share your 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 story with my viewers. And to my viewers, I want to thank you for watching this episode of HBCU. I'm your host, D Brown, CEO. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, without you. There's no me.